Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Papa loco, où se Poussez nous c'est papillon à porter nouvelle baïagoué. Papa loco, où c'est Papillon a porté nouvelle Et tout ça qui dit bien J'aime la Qui dit malon, j'aime la Papa loco, où se vende, où a poussé ma Nous, c'est papillon, a porté
performing there was no different uh, the men was the world but in Haiti they did start earlier in this country before the United States I spent 65 years in the United States and I bring my heart with me and I said time for me to go and help Haiti Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a recent Washington Post report tracks how Facebook has accommodated Donald Trump, allowing Trump to post false, incendiary, and racist comments that would get another person sanctioned. Facebook, the paper reports, quote, has constrained its efforts against false and misleading news, adopted a policy explicitly allowing politicians to lie, and even altered its newsfeed algorithm to neutralize claims that it was biased against conservative publishers, close quote. That's according to former and current Facebook employees and company documents. It's incredibly important for a platform one and a half billion people use, and that is, for many, replacing actual news outlets as a source of information. Activists have been complaining for years, but a current campaign is getting some traction. It's called Stop Hate for Profit, and it's the work of a coalition of groups, one of which is Free Press. 
We'll hear about what organizers want to change with Free Press co-CEO Jessica Gonzalez. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. When Trump sent out a tweet calling Minnesota protesters thugs and threatening the intervention of U.S. military, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, Twitter called that glorifying violence. But corporate news media had a different complaint. Trump's threat, said CNN, was un-American. As Lucas Kerner wrote for FAIR.org, media leapt to compare Trump and his attempted militarized power grab to a litany of official boogeymen. The Guardian wrote that he sides with authoritarians like Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, and Rodrigo Duterte, while a New York Times column said Trump was following a strong man's playbook. The irony-deficient Washington Post likened the president who threatened a coup to the actual victim of a Washington-sponsored coup, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. Of course, Trump is authoritarian, But this ubiquitous trope serves to insulate the U.S. empire and military from critique. No, United States troops won't massacre protesters as Chinese troops did, wrote the New York Times' Nicholas Kristof. But Trump's deployment of troops for political purposes would betray our traditions. The Philadelphia Inquirer's Trudy Rubin claimed the U.S. military's unwillingness to put down civilian protest, quote, is what separates us from China, Russia, Turkey, Egypt, and others, close quote. Trump's love of military undermines democracy, her headline stated. Carefully avoided in all of these plaintive, this is not who we are, statements, is acknowledgement that the U.S. military has been responsible for killing millions of people for political purposes across numerous countries and armed and trained client regimes that have killed millions more. Oh, but they weren't Americans. The U.S. would never... Well, except for the white supremacist and anti-labor massacres of the late 19th and early 20th century, FBI's COINTEL program in the 60s and 70s, and the bombing of the MOVE Black Liberation Group in Philadelphia in 1985. More recently, black people protesting police violence have been labeled a domestic terror threat by the FBI. The agency made up a category, black identity extremists, to describe people angry at what they called perceptions of police brutality against African Americans. Media's main complaint seems to be not so much that Trump would use troops to shoot protesters, but that such an action would tarnish Washington's image as, in CNN's words, the world's moral guardian. That such an image is not tarnished but unearned is off the page. Fair intern Loretta Graceffo found more evidence of media deploring Trump's threat against protesters, but rather than asking protesters to respond, handing the mic to enforcers of state violence abroad. CIA veterans who monitored crackdowns abroad see troubling parallels in Trump's handling of protests, was one Washington Post story, which quoted a longtime agent saying, quote, it reminded me of what I reported on for years in the third world. Saddam, Bashar, Gaddafi, they all did this, close quote. Again, the problem isn't that there aren't any parallels to be seen in Trump's violent response to protests, but that this is treated as new and aberrational and out of keeping with U.S. history. 
It's just weird to cite Representative Abigail Spanberger saying, quote, as a former CIA officer, I know this playbook, close quote, and restrain the understanding of that statement to the notion that she learned it by monitoring democratic regression and societal unraveling in the global south, rather than from the CIA's own anti-democratic plays in places like Chile, Zaire, and Turkey. In media's rendering, the same U.S. military that invades and occupies and bombs all around the world is, at home, a moral authority. It's normal, necessary, and perhaps even noble, is the message, for U.S. tanks to line the streets of the Middle East. It's only a problem if it's in New Jersey. The narrative is on full display on the Sunday talk shows. In the two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd, Graceffo looked at every episode of ABC's This Week, CBS's Face the Nation, NBC's Meet the Press, CNN's State of the Union, and Fox News Sunday. Across them all, only one show featured an interview with someone affiliated with Black Lives Matter in its coverage of the protests. But every network found time to interview current and former members of the U.S. national security apparatus, resulting in 12 appearances altogether. One of those was Robert O'Brien, the U.S. national security advisor, who just moments after defending Trump's militaristic response stated, quote, that's the difference between us and our foreign adversaries. We're going to allow people to protest, close quote. Well, protesters might have taken issue with the idea that police tear gassing, pepper spraying, beating, screaming at them and running into them with their cars is allowing people to protest. Presumably that's why they weren't invited. And finally, the Washington Post reports that newsrooms are reflecting on their relationship with law enforcement. Forced to confront the undeniable reality that in numerous instances that we know about, citizen-recorded cell phone video dramatically contradicts initial police accounts. The story offers the usual excuses. Journalists on deadline say they typically have few choices other than police to get them the information they need when a crime happens. They'd like to do better, but it's hard given the realities of shrinking newsrooms and the constant deadline pressures imposed by the Internet. But what about backing away from if it bleeds, it leads altogether? As research has long shown, it gives people a distorted understanding of crime and who is likely to be a victim. The Post account acknowledges that, calling the downplaying of routine police blotter stories altogether on what the Post calls the theory that they lean too heavily on the say-so of police, a more radical step that some are urging. The story never asks what the cost of not making such a change is and who will pay it. And there's no discussion of what crimes and what communities routinely make it into news in the first place. But things as they are, it's a welcome development. As Citations Needed podcast hosts Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson tweeted, now do it for the Pentagon and CIA. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Civil rights and social justice groups have been grappling for years with ways to address hateful speech, harassment, and disinformation on Facebook. The issue is on the front burner again as major companies like Unilever and Starbucks are pausing their ads. 
the platform's source of revenue, as part of a coordinated effort to get Facebook to change policies that allow politicians and others to make false and incendiary claims. A Facebook security engineer quit in disgust when the platform refused to take down a post from Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro that said, quote, Indians are undoubtedly changing. They are increasingly becoming human beings just like us, close quote. That would seem to be a clear violation of internal guidelines against dehumanizing speech, but as revealed in a recent Washington Post expose, the engineer was told that it didn't qualify as racism and, quote, may have even been a positive reference to integration. Close quote. That sort of casuistry has marked Facebook's actions, and activists have heard enough. The group Free Press has been one of those working for change. We're joined now by Free Press co-CEO Jessica Gonzalez. She joins us by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jessica Gonzalez. Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, it's worth stating at the outset that Free Press, like FAIR, opposes censorship, believes in the free flow of ideas, and in debate. That doesn't require acceptance of the promotion of dangerous medical misinformation, Holocaust denial, or instigations to violence against people protesting police brutality. We have to grapple with the tremendous influence of social media somehow. So that said, tell us about the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, which companies from Adidas to Williams-Sonoma are taking part in. What are the problems that the campaign is looking to address? You know, you're right, Janine. Free press stands for a free press. And we imagine a free press that frees people from oppression. We imagine a free press that holds the powerful accountable. So unlike calls for government to censor speech, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign is seeking for advertisers to vote with their feet, is seeking to hold up the really vast amount of hate, bigotry, and disinformation that is happening on Facebook's platform. Facebook has known about this problem. Our organizations have been in dialogue with Facebook for some time. We've been calling on them to institute a comprehensive change to keep people safe on the platform because we understand that when hate speech and disinformation flow on Facebook, that it puts people's lives at risk in real life, and that it also makes it harder for people from historically oppressed groups to speak out when we speak out and face an onslaught of hate and harassment. So what the campaign is calling for is for all major advertisers on a global scale to drop their advertising on Facebook for the month of July. And we're now up to over 700 advertisers that have agreed to drop from Facebook, including Honda, Ford, Unilever, Coke, and other major brands that have essentially called on Facebook to meet our request. And the interesting thing here is that the companies came along really easily because it's not good for their brands to be associated with the types of hate and disinformation that are running rampant on the platform. 
Well, it isn't that Facebook just allows extremist or toxic content. There's something, isn't there, in the business model that encourages polarization? You're absolutely right. 99% of Facebook's business model is advertising, and we are the products on Facebook. Facebook is selling access to us, consumers, individuals that use the platform. That's what they're selling to their advertisers. So how do they make the most money? By keeping us, their product, on the platform as much as possible. And we know that hate, harassment, and wild disinformation are the types of content that garner high attention and high engagement and keep us on the platform, even when we don't agree with those things and we're, in fact, fighting back against hate and disinformation, it's still generating time on the platform, engagement on the platform, and that is how they make their money. So, yes, this is built right into their business model, and until now, nobody's really been talking about that, or or we've been talking about it, but it hasn't received the widespread attention that it's receiving in this moment. Well, the Wall Street Journal, some listeners may know, reported an internal Facebook report that executives got in 2018 that found that the company was well aware that its recommendation engine stoked divisiveness and polarization. But they ignored those findings because they thought any changes would disproportionately affect conservatives, which is just, I think, mind-blowing. So this is not a problem that they don't know about. And the the journal also cites a separate report in 2016 that said that 64% of people who joined an extremist group on Facebook only did so because the company's algorithm recommended it to them. So this is, as you're saying, it's not, it's not passive. Right. It's, It's absolutely not. This is intentional. They've known these things. This reminds me of how the tobacco industry hid information about the damaging health effects of cigarettes back in the day. This is Facebook hiding information about the toxic effects of their own platform. And it's really shameful, frankly, that it's taken this much to get the attention onto what Facebook has been up to. Well, it's not passive, but it's also not equal opportunity. You know, it, it's, it sort of tends to go no. in one direction, right? You know, No, and this whole conservative bias, red herring that gets thrown out there as a reason for not to do anything ought to be really offensive to conservatives. Last time I checked, they haven't said that conservatism and anti-racism are opposites. Yeah. I think this is a nonpartisan issue or at least it should be. We all have an interest, regardless of political party, race, religion, and whatnot, to end racism in our society. And to use this red herring as a reason not to is really immoral. It it seems relevant that a group of black workers at Facebook just filed a class action with the EEOC alleging that Facebook discriminates against black workers and applicants in hiring, evaluations, promotions, 
and pay. Black people are just 3.8% of Facebook's workforce, 1.5% of tech workers, and that hasn't increased even as the company's gone from 9,000 workers to nearly 45,000. One wonders how that company culture has bearing on their decision-making about when is something racist, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not surprised at all that workers are facing discrimination inside of Facebook because the product itself is discriminatory. There's discriminatory algorithms at play, and there's a business model that is essentially hate profiteering. So this isn't much different than Things I've thought about in the past with, with like hate radio, for instance, mm-hmm. some of these really hateful pundits that are often on iHeartRadio, that you hear a lot of complaints about hate and harassment within. This is a pervasive cultural issue at companies that trade in hate. Well, this June 28th Washington Post piece charts how Facebook shifted its policies to accommodate Trump. Uh, The engineer who quit in disgust, David Thiel, is quoted saying, the value of being in favor with people in power outweighs almost every other concern for Facebook. For Trump, that's meant that everything he says is newsworthy just because he said it, no matter how false or racist or inflammatory. And that carve-out for politicians is galling to people, but it's not, of course, the only problem. But that does seem to be a serious thing, to simply say that because someone's a politician, they can say whatever they want. Right. I mean, this really speaks to the question of what are we talking about when we talk about a free press? When I think of a free press, I think of the fourth estate, one that holds the powerful accountable. And he's done just the opposite. There's a set of content moderation rules that users have to follow that the president doesn't and other powerful leaders. That's an incredibly big problem. The free press is supposed to hold power accountable. It's not supposed to give them a free ride. And frankly, it shows an appalling lack of awareness about the moment we're in, the cultural moment we're in, where we are reckoning with racism across the government, in our society, in our businesses, and in our own organizations and, and minds. All of us need to be thinking about anti-Blackness in particular, And it shows that he's really not thinking about that, or if he is, he's made a calculated decision to put profit over morals. Well, let's talk about some of the recommendations or or next steps that the campaign has put forward. What would you like to see happen? What are some of the elements? We have a number of recommendations that are on our website, stophateforprofit.org. But I'll highlight a few of them. Facebook needs a permanent civil rights infrastructure and accountability system inside the company. They need to comply with regular third-party audits that track how they are doing in complying with the civil rights infrastructure that needs to be built. And they need to overhaul their content moderation system that change the terms coalition which is a coalition of over 55 civil rights and racial justice organizations, has put forth a comprehensive set of model policies 
aimed at Facebook and other social media companies, and we're asking them to ban hateful activities, to ban white supremacists, and to significantly invest in enforcement in transparency about their content moderation process, in rights of appeal so that people of color and religious minorities and others who are protesting racism and hate are not the ones that get taken down, but in fact, it's actually the hate and proliferation of racism and recruitment into white supremacist groups that gets taken down. We're calling for Facebook to ban all state actor, bot, and troll campaigns that trade in hateful activities. And so we have a larger set of policy recommendations on stophateforprofit.org, including a call for Facebook to develop a hotline so that its users who are experiencing hate and harassment have somewhere to call to take care of when they're experiencing hate, much like you might call your internet service provider or your water company if you are having a problem there. So those are some of the policy changes that we're calling for from Facebook. Well, at the end of this Washington Post piece, we see Mark Zuckerberg saying Facebook is going to start labeling problematic newsworthy content. I read somewhere they're talking about commissioning research on polarization. Does this look like genuine engagement with the problems that you're talking about to you? And I wonder, you've been working with them, you know, For so long, do you think that they have evolved or has your way of engaging with them changed over time? And and, and how real, how seriously do you think they're taking this right now? I think this is more chipping away at the edges and failing to do comprehensive reform. Mm -hmm. So if they think they're done, they're sorely mistaken. (laughs) And while I think it's like a step in the right direction, we're super tired of steps in the right direction. I don't know whether or not this is sincere. I think not. I think it's a response to all the bad PR uh, that they're experiencing and all the dissent they're feeling even inside the company. And while there are some things that I'm interested in tracking, for instance, they've claimed that they are going to ban hateful activities aimed at people based on immigration status. They've claimed they're not going to allow hate in ads. They claim they're going to apply their rules towards politicians. I frankly don't believe them because they've made a lot of promises over the years and failed to enforce them. Well, what finally comes next? What if they do the same kind of hand-waving that they've done in the past and nothing really changes? Where do we go from there? Well, that's a really good question. Right now, we are continuing to organize to move this campaign to the global level. So we will continue to levy advertiser pressure. And listen, you know, there's a real question over whether Facebook is just too damn powerful and whether we need further regulatory and legislative interventions to hold this company accountable to the people. And those are not off the table as far as free press is concerned, we've already called at free press for an ad tax on Facebook, taxing 2% of their profit and reinvesting that money back into quality, local and independent news production. 
to support reporters who are going to have to do the hard work of putting Facebook's hate in context and correcting the record on the disinformation that runs rampant on their sites. We've also called for robust reform in the privacy realm, and we have a piece of model legislation that we are recommending the U.S. Congress adopt to make sure that Facebook is not violating our privacy rights, our civil rights, and that the power about the kind and the ways that Facebook collects data about us and then monetizes our data is in the control of us, the people, and that we have more transparency about what they're collecting and that we have a private right of action when Facebook is violating our rights. So I think at a minimum, those need to be seriously considered now. And I think there's probably further interventions that need to happen in Congress uh, if Facebook refuses to comply with these demands. And perhaps even if they do comply, Mm -hmm. this really shines a light on just how powerful they are. We've been speaking with Jessica Gonzalez, co-CEO of the group Free Press. They're online at freepress.net, and you can learn more about this campaign at stophateforprofit.org. Jessica Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website. It's FAIR.org. The website is also the place to find out about our newsletter extra or to sign up for our Action Alert network. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to the Otay Mesa Detention Center in California, where a mass outbreak of COVID-19 has infected at least 166 immigrants imprisoned there. But sources inside say the number is much higher. Last week, a woman jailed at Otay Mesa filed a petition with a San Diego court alleging the detention center, run by private prison corporation CoreCivic, has failed to protect the more than 1,000 people in prison there from the coronavirus. Instead, the virus has devastated the population inside, while prisoners report dire conditions, lack of medical care and the repeated use of pepper spray as retaliation. In May, 57-year-old Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia who came from El Salvador with his family in the 80s, during the country's U.S.-backed civil war, died at Otay Mesa after contracting COVID-19. His fellow prisoners described days of horrible neglect that led to his death. When he died, Escobar Mejia had reportedly been in the hospital on a ventilator for over a week. Immigrants detained at Otay Mesa are demanding their immediate release, as are the ACLU and other civil rights groups. ICE—that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement—says they've released at least 90 medically vulnerable people from the jail, but advocates say it's not enough to curb the spread. Well, for more, we're going directly inside Otay Mesa to speak with Anthony Alexander, longtime U.S. resident and Haitian immigrant, who's led two hunger strikes and protests of conditions at the jail. Anthony, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you describe the conditions in the jail? And what about these hunger strikes? What's happened to you inside? What are you demanding? Well, we are still in an unmitigated disaster that uh, it's, the condition is still dire. The, the amount of detainees that have been affected with the uh, positive here in no time is size, around 250. Detainees, and uh, they still haven't done anything to mitigate the situation. The lack of uh, health care is still. We have between three to nine medical staff on any time on on the premises, and uh, we decided to hunger strike because we were asking for basic dignity, and as a retaliation, they pepper sprayed us. This was really hard for us. It was really hard to breathe. It was about 20 minutes when they came in and asked us that they're going to put us in a unit that had 15, 15 detainees that had tested positive. We didn't want to leave because our body was so feeble because we were in a hunger strike, and they decided to come in and pepper spray us. There was, like, people on the floor. It was, like, a 20-minute 20 minutes of pain, just like you could see Floyd is struggling for air. That's how we were at this at this point. And uh, they came in, dragged us out of our cell, and put us to another unit to go to uh, uh, to a pod where Carlos Escobar were. So they took 15 detainees that was an pod to put them on L pod that they just finished pepper spraying. It was. Unbelievable. That's what makes the situation so pernicious because they took Carlos at that time. We saw him gasping for air when they were putting him on L pod, which was the pod that we just left. They just finished pepper spray. They waited three days after watching Carlos Escobar struggling for air. They waited for three days to take him to outside medical. I could not believe that. That was something that is very negligent. 
And they decided after that to take us to a medical unit that had three other detainees that tested positive where we sharing phone, they're not properly cleaning it. The cell where we were was dirty, filthy, dirty with blood stain on walls, spit on the floor. I had to clean my the cell myself when I was so weak. It was unbelievable, unbearable in this uh, in this facility. And Anthony, I wanted to ask you, back in April, the prisoners were told to sign contracts that were written only in English in exchange for receiving face masks. And I would assume that the, the, the vast majority of the detainees there are of Mexican or Central American uh, 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 origin. Uh, many of them una- uh, don't speak English. What was, uh, what was your – and then they were pepper sprayed when some refused? Yes. The, the, the reason – the reason why this occurred is because they did not give us proper PPE at all. The mask they give us was actually one day use only, and they give you that twice every, what, two months. And we had to cut off pieces of clothing to to make personal masks with that. So because those property belonged to them, they pepper sprayed us for cutting pieces of those clothing to put as masks. And... Uh, the, they want you to sign to get those little instant masks that I'm just discussing with you right now. And most of these uh, detainees does not speak English, and you have to sign for it. I was I was the one that's trying to translate what it was to, to make sure that everybody got one in my unit so they could uh, be able to protect themselves. That That is accurate. So, yes, they, this is indicative to how they behave when you don't, when they don't like you to do something, they just pepper spray you. That's indicative to how they behave. Anthony, I wanted to play a video, a recording you made for the organization Otay Mesa Detention Resistance, to play for California Governor Gavin Newsom during a meeting um, with his staff last month. My name is Anthony Alexandre. I'm at Otay Mesa Detention Center. I'm a legal permanent resident for 30 years. I was born in Haiti. Governor, you have been a beacon of hope to all of us here. We believe that you are a pragmatic type of person. You will do the right thing. Governor Newsom, send the AG to investigate, or please tell us what step are you going to take to save our lives? So, Anthony Alexander, do you know if the governor heard this? Um, the, the conditions in the prison now, is it, are you still asked to sign a waiver uh, if you get a mask, if you want to get a mask uh, that would absolve core civic of liability? This is a for-profit detention company, prison company that runs Otay Mesa. Um, describe what core civic is and whether the governor has responded. The governor, we, 40 detainees uh, at, um, on my unit, we signed a letter to Governor Newsom and we sent it to the office. They sent back a letter saying that they wanted to speak to us, but we haven't heard back from them uh, ever since we had the second, we had the first conversation. Now, at, at Otay Mesa Detention Center, the last time they gave us a mask was at least a month and a half ago. These are cloth mask masks they give us, not those, you know, ethnic masks anymore. So they give us two masks. We have to wash them all the time. And 
you know, most of these things are not wearing any mask anymore because we're back in our unit. We try to keep it clean. They don't allow us to go outside. They lock us up at least 18 hours a day now, and they're giving us three times a day said bologna sandwiches. So basically, I, uh, CoreCivic is telling us they do not care about our health. They do not care about anything else but their bottom line. So this is not a place where you can be comfortable. They make it very difficult for you to breathe. Uh, they tell us that we have to, if you don't want to get infected, they, first of all, they say they're not responsible for us if we get COVID-19. And they tell us that if you don't want to get if you don't want to test positive, you can sign for your deportation. So they're basically using the COVID-19 to make us sign for a deportation. This is not a place that where you know they are doing, taking measures to make sure that our health is at, you know, is, is up to date. So it's very difficult to 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 be relaxed in a place like this. Stress everywhere, everybody's getting sick, and, you know, you have to make sure that you wear a mask every day and gloves. I'm extremely vigilant because I suffer from underlying condition. So every time I go out of this seven by 12 uh, cell, I have to put a mask, wear a glove to make sure that, you know, I don't get sick because I suffer from an underlying condition. So everybody in here, we all worry. Everybody thinks that, you know, that if we something happened to us, we might die. Uh, some of these guys are signing letters to their family to say, you know, please, because after Escobar, we saw what had happened with Escobar, we all thought maybe we won't make it because some of these guys, this condition is so bad. Some of the, I remember seeing one guy slit his own throat. There was one other guy that swallowed a battery, you know, because they don't want to go back to their country and they don't want to leave. They don't want them to stay here in the U.S. So this, this is this is very stressful here, being in here. And Anthony, I wanted, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your story. You mentioned that you were a 30-year permanent resident of the United States. Uh, how did you end up at Otay Mesa? And also, how have you emerged as a leader uh, of the, uh, the detainees there, as you mentioned, most of whom are Spanish-speaking? Uh, well, because I spoke a little bit of Spanish, and I had uh, uh, another detainee here in Norway who believed in what we were doing, and when we decided to do the hunger strike, I told them that was the right thing to do, because I was watching Carlos Escobar going back and forth to medical unit. I was seeing the, the way they were dealing dealing with people, and I thought that was the right thing to do, to do a hunger strike to make sure that I help them, to make sure they get the proper PPE, asking for basic dignity. That's all it was. So we we came together, and we decided to do this. 21 of us um, decided to do the hunger strike, and then Beckham came down and said, if we continue with this hunger strike, she's going to make sure that we get deported. Some of the guys got scared, so I told them, listen, this can't be, because what we are doing, there's nothing nefarious about it, and we are just protesting peacefully. We're just asking for basic dignity. So basically... There's no judge in our mind that would depart us just because we are asking for something so simple. So they, they, they followed through with us, and then, you know, one of the guys that had been, he couldn't even breathe. He had like a, 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 a thing on his, on his throat. He has to press all the time to speak, and they saw that one of the medical unit then told us, these guys cannot be here. So after that, and they said, you filed the injunction, and then uh, a lot of detainees had left uh, the place, which was good because, you know, I wish that we had started 
that hunger strike sooner, at least Escobar saved life will be safe at this point. Now, I, I was uh, I came here in San Diego to visit uh, a girl, and the uh, situation happened on 2011. They waited five years to take me to trial, which statute of limitation of the charge they took me to trial with was expired. I could not believe it. So there's no equal protection under the law for all. That is really constitutional violations. And I told the court that. I showed them their paper. They made a mistake. They never, ever believed it. They just put a rubber stamp on my habeas corpus that I filed for them. And they just basically ignored, flat out ignored uh, judicial notice that I asked them to take. And... I'm still in here. So you served your time, and then you were taken directly after you finished your prison term to the detention center to be deported to Haiti? That's, that's correct. And that's do you correct. know when you will be deported, or if you will be? Well, not right, not at this point because uh, because of COVID nineteen, they keep postponing all the all the courts because lawyers cannot come to the facility, and they keep postponing and said, you know, next month, next month, until so, things are. So the guards use pepper spray even in a time of COVID-19, which is a respiratory disease. Um, they're saying something like 166 people inside have this in the 1,000-person jail. Estimates, what do you estimate for the people who have COVID-19 inside? Um, and how—you talked about the, uh, the signing of the waivers. Are they in English? Are they in Spanish? The waivers are in English only. So and you have to sign a waiver to get these, the mask, as opposed to being told yes. you must wear a mask to protect everyone? No, you have to sign a waiver to have your own mask. They're not making it mandatory for anybody to wear a mask. The only time they make it mandatory is when you leave your unit, your unit to go to medical, to go to the medical unit. Final words, Anthony, as we wrap up here, um, speaking to us from inside the Otay Mesa Detention Center, what the external solidarity means to you. You have the Otay Mesa uh, resistance movement outside. How do they get word inside? How do you get word out? Well, this this was difficult, because this is very important to, to hear. When I arrived here, um, I, I've been trying to to vindicate my right, and ICE blocked me from vital information that would facilitate me to win my cases. They block numbers, like, for example, Otay Mesa Resistance, they block their numbers for us to call, because sometimes I would need information. They're the one that would help me out. They block those numbers. They're making sure that we have you watch specific shows they want to watch. We're not allowed to speak to other detainees and different units. It's like having their foot on our, our necks. They're not allowing us to do the things that need basic dignity. Our right is violated. Our mm -hmm. First Amendment right is violated. So ACLU had filed, them, uh, filed a letter to let them know to cease and desist because, you know, they're not supposed to do that. So basically now they are allowing us to speak to the resistance again. So this is not United States of America. Once you arrive here, you basically have no rights. That's what they're telling us. This is civil detention. It cannot be. We are both in a world, we are all in a world that none of us have lived before. So it cannot be business as usual, you know, and I cannot just ignore basic 
basic dignity and of us being in here where we could be on ankle monitors with our family. There's no reason why they should keep us in here unless profiting from our suffering. You're calling so for Otay Mesa to be shut down, Anthony? Yes, because we, all, we don't have to be here. We all could be home with our family on ankle monitors to fight our cases on the outside. What's the point of being in here to was just not for profit? Anthony Alexander, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Longtime U.S. resident and Haitian immigrant jailed at Otay Mesa Detention Center uh, near San Diego since February. Since the coronavirus crisis began, he's led multiple hunger strikes over conditions at the immigration jail, been pepper sprayed along with a number of other of the detainees. ICE has the uh, sole authority. It could simply release the prisoners being held there. That does it for this segment. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. To see more of our coverage of Otay Mesa and what's happening to prisons around the country, go to democracynow.org. Thanks so much, and stay safe.